So we're going to study his word together. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to Psalm 89. All right, so Psalm 89, we're going to read portions of it in just a second. We're not going to read the whole thing. It is the third longest of all the Psalms, and so we're going to try to read uh, sort of portions or snippets that capture the essence of what the whole Psalm is about. Uh, the historical backdrop of Psalm 89 is probably the Babylonian exile. And so Babylon came in 586 BC, conquered Jerusalem, loaded people up in carts and, and exiled them to Babylon, carried them away from their homeland. And it was, it was the darkest day in centuries in Old Testament history. And so there are perhaps, there are many clues, I think, that that's what's behind this, but a couple of the big ones are in verse 40. It talks about how the fortified cities are in ruins and then in verse 44, the throne of David has been overturned. And so it seems like that's looking out on that moment in history, that dark moment in history when Babylon came and conquered Jerusalem. You might be familiar, so for example, here in our country, we have certain events that are shared crises. And they're shared crises in such a way that we mark time by them. So we sometimes talk pre 9 11 post 9-11, because we all know if you were alive at that time, you know where you were when those buildings came down. You marked time by it. So I grew up in New Orleans and was there when Hurricane Katrina came through. And the whole city marks time. We talk about life in terms of, was that pre-Katrina or post-Katrina? Because we all, it's a shared crisis. And in that sense, Psalm 89 is the same way. For Old Testament Israel, in 586, what happened there, they marked time. Was that pre-Babylonian exile or post-Babylonian exile? And in this dark day, the thing that's so striking that I hope we're gonna see by the time that we're done is in the midst of this national crisis, we hear this man, Ethan the Ezraite, singing from exile. It's a powerful thing about the life of faith. I hope we're gonna see some of the principles of what goes into this. And so, follow along with me. Here's what he's singing in the presence of God from exile. He sings this, verse one. I will sing about the Lord's faithful love forever. I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations with my mouth. For I will declare faithful love is built up forever. You establish your faithfulness in the heavens. The Lord said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn an oath to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build up your throne for all generations. Skip down to verse 19 if you would. You once spoke in a vision to your faithful ones and said, so pause for a second, Ethan is taking you back 500 years or so, nearly 500 years, to the promise that God gave to King David himself. It's called the Davidic covenant. It's a massive turning point in the Bible, massive turning point in the Old Testament. And here's what God said. So he says, you once spoke in a vision to your faithful ones and said, I have granted help to a warrior. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. I have anointed him with my sacred oil. My hand will always be with him and my arm will strengthen him. And then he continues to sort of unpack the terms of the covenant to David. But then look at verse 38. But you have spurned and rejected him. You have become enraged with your anointed. You have repudiated the covenant with your servant. You wanna say, hey, watch it. I don't like your tone here. 
Well, here's what he's saying. He's just talking about what, what feels real. Verse 39, you've repudiated the covenant with your servant. You've completely dishonored his crown. Skip down to verse 49. Lord, where are the former acts of your faithful love that you swore to David in your faithfulness? Remember, Lord, the ridicule against your servants. He's thinking about the Babylonians coming in and howling, scoffing at the people. He says, remember that? In my heart, I carry abuse from all the peoples. How your enemies have ridiculed, Lord. How they have ridiculed every step of your anointed. And here's how he ends, verse 52. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. I heard a story about a respected theologian who, as he faced his untimely death, he was mostly buoyant with hope and with joy in Christ and would comfort the people who came to his bedside and yet there was a day where one of his friends said, I walked up to this respected theologian and he said, I don't have a theology for this. And if you ever hear someone say, I don't have a theology for this, it's usually not the time to break out the chalkboard. It's usually not the time to say, oh, glad I'm here. Here to give you a theology for this. That's usually not the moment, right? Sometimes we find ourselves living living in this tension between glorious promises and present darkness, right? Those two things are colliding into the same space. That's why we said last week that the Psalms are truth colliding with real human experience. It's, it's real right here for him and he's, he's bringing his doubts into the presence of God. He's bringing his mess before God. You wanna feel some of the force of, of his questions. Just, just consider what God said to David in the Davidic covenant back in 2 Samuel chapter seven, here's what he said. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. Here's where the tension is. So he's got, if you will, Ethan's got the Bible open on his lap to 2 Samuel chapter seven and the evening news with exile all over the screen and he says, how does this make any sense? You promised. You promised that throne would never be vacated. It would never be empty. Guess what? Guess who kicked it over? Babylon kicked it over, set the whole place on fire. It's torched. There's no one on David's throne. I thought you promised that throne would never be empty. How does this, Lord, with reverence, how does this add up? Christian friend, the the most important time to believe God's promises never fail are when they seem to have failed. Let me say that again. It's in your notes. The most important time to believe that God's promises never fail are precisely when they seem to have failed. You know, but there's something so instructive for us in this text. You, you notice how the psalm begins and how it ends. The first words of this psalm written from exile are, I will sing about the Lord's faithful love forever. And then you've got questions and doubts and struggles in the middle. And then you come to the last verse and he says, blessed be the Lord forever. In other words, this psalm is bookended with praise. This psalm is showing us how it's done, how to walk through mire and trials in life with our eyes up and out in faith. 
And if we follow along, I think we're gonna see four vantage points for viewing God. Seeing God in the Psalms is the title of this series. And this Psalm, if you will, directs us to worship the God who is number one, faithful in love. First point, faithful in love. Just keep filling out your outline. Just keep looking right there because the next point is this. The psalmist begins by announcing his intention to sing. It's an intention to sing. The first three words, I will sing. Even from here, even from exile, I'm gonna sing right here in the ashes and here's what I'm gonna sing. I'm gonna sing about his faithful love. The theme on his lips is the faithful love, or it could be translated the mercies. It's in the plural. The many acts of God's faithful love. The many mercies. In other words, he's counting them up. There are many of them, and I'm gonna sing of these mercies. I wonder if you've ever had an experience where you sit down with another believer, and you tell your story. And you sit down and you say, there's no hurry here. You tell me your story, you start, and and then I'll share mine. And I could sit with any one of you for an hour, easy, and tell my story. And in a word, my story is mercy. Mercies. Grateful to have Joel Brooks is here. He's pastor of Redeemer Community Church. And he's a dear friend. And we've sat down and we've done this for hours. We sat down and just said, you first. We just told the story of God's grace in our lives, just mercies tracking us down moment after moment after our lives. Mercy in the form of comfort in my life in times of loss. Mercy in the form of discipline as God's appealing me away from stuff that's destroying me. Mercy just in the form of providentially relocating me from New Orleans, relocating me away from my high school friends who were evangelizing me more than I was evangelizing them and I just needed a place where I could breathe and take in God's truth. That's what I needed. Maybe not everybody needs that. I needed that and God, that was a mercy that God gave me. Mercies where he just found me, just came up and out. Martin Luther said, God's, arm, God's, God's word has arms, it reaches up and grabs us, it has legs, it runs after us. Mercies that I could tell stories of, of God's transforming power. My own life verses, I could take you to Philippians 3, verse seven through 11, probably my favorite passage in the whole Bible. I, I could take you to the, the, the place, the hotel room where I was when I first read that verse. I could take you to Psalm 63, grace experienced there, Psalm 42, Isaiah 35, Romans 8, John 15, just, just explosions of God's grace and mercy in my life, just relentless acts of mercy on God's part toward me. I don't know how many of you have ever had the, the joy of seeing one of the great waterfalls of the world, Victoria Falls or Niagara Falls. I've seen Niagara Falls, I remember going there in college and I looked at Niagara Falls and I was just spellbound. I just stared at this water just raging and just pouring over the shelf and I was just looking at it and I couldn't take my eyes off of it. If there is anything in all of nature that deserves the word relentless, it's Niagara Falls. In the scripture, there is nothing more relentless than the love of God. You wanna find Niagara Falls in the Bible, Romans eight is a great place to watch it pour over the shelf just to see the unfettered 
power, the raging river of God's infinite, almighty love bursting out of the cross, pouring forth from Calvary. It is relentless. It'll pull you in. You get too close and it will drag you down and over the ledge. It's an awesome thing. I recommend it. Matter of fact, in a sense, that's what preaching is all about. It's what I hope to do every Sunday. I hope to be pulled down river and grab your ankles. And we go over the ledge together. (laughs) The ledge being biblical faith. The ledge being biblical faith, meaning this is a place where where you and I give up control of my life and we just go into an all-out, glad-hearted, free fall into the grace of God. That's biblical faith. Seeing in the cross the relentless love of God, verse one, this isn't just a resolve to sing, it's a resolve to keep singing. You see that? I will sing about the Lord's faithful love forever. This is a song that's never gonna be outdated because God's faithfulness is unchanging. What a truth that is. Maybe if you grew up in church, you grew up singing. There is no shadow of turning with thee. What does it say next? Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. It's not just literal musical singing. It is that, but it's not just that. Because the parallel, so we talked about parallelism as a device that the poets used in ancient times. The parallel too, I will sing about the Lord's faithful love forever. You look at that next verse or that next statement in verse one is, I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations with my mouth. And so you ask the question, is this guy singing or is he sharing the gospel? Yes, he's doing both. He can't stop proclaiming, singing, shouting, declaring all that God has done, all the mercies that he's known. In other words, this psalm, this singing isn't less than singing. It's a whole lot more than singing. It's a life of making much of Christ. So this psalm directs us to worship the God who's faithful in love and two, faithful in power. Faithful in power. What do we see here? So we see several aspects, several sort of windows into the sovereign power of God. First, heavenly hosts revere him. Heavenly hosts revere him. So he's talking, he's sort of opening up this picture of the innumerable angels who worship before God. He calls them in verse five, the assembly of the holy ones. That that word assembly in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is that word ekklesia. It's the, the word in the New Testament that is often translated church. He's bringing you to, if you will, Ethan is bringing you to church in heaven. The assembly of the holy ones, the gathering of righteous saints made perfect. It's church in heaven. You ever stop to think that what we do here on any given Sunday morning, we're not the only ones who are singing? It's an awesome thing to think. Redeemer Community Church on the other side of the city is singing this morning. New Rising Star, friend Thomas Beavers, and churches all over our city, churches all over the world gathering to sing to this God who has revealed himself in Christ. And not only on earth, not only the church militant, the church triumphant sings with the angels singing to the thrice holy God, holy, holy Holy, the earth is filled with your glory. Cherubim, seraphim, along with those who have crossed over the finish line, 
living the life of faith, all falling down before the almighty Lord of heaven. The worship of the local church is meant to be a preview of heaven, a foretaste of heaven. Imperfect, but you can catch a glimpse of it. This is a little bit what it's like in heaven. Verse five, Lord, the heavens praise your wonders. That's what they're doing. They're praising his wonders, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. You think about so these holy ones. These are, these are the angels. I think we need to develop our angel theology sometimes. Angels in the Bible are not like their porcelain you know, gift shop counterparts, you know, with harps and huggies. You know, they're sort of in diapers and you've got chai, you know, thighs you're just dying to squeeze. You know, just a bunch of babies with bows that obviously don't work. That's, that's not a picture of biblical angels. Scripture calls them mighty ones who do his word. Scripture calls them fiery messengers. They show up here on earth and the holiest people in the Bible hit the dirt. It is a self-preservation instinct. They're trying to make sure they live through this. That's why so often the angels show up and the very first word on their lips is do not fear. Why? Because my first instinct is just that. I'm terrified. You dwell in the presence of the most high God. You have this shining thing going on. It's scary. For holy people, look, you, you think about this. Humans in the Bible tremble before the holy angels. And here in verse seven, the holy angels tremble in the presence of the holiness of God. He is awesome in holiness. Heavenly hosts revere him too. The raging sea obeys him. The raging sea obeys him. What is more untamable in nature than the sea? So you look and you watch videos on YouTube of tsunamis and what tsunamis do and you watch these videos of tsunamis and, and they just come in and what do they do? Whatever they want. They just pile cars up like they're plastic toys. Just let's just pile another one on there. They grab an ocean liner, just slam it into the side of a building. Whatever tsunamis want to do, they do. Unless God enters into the picture because it says in verse nine, you rule the raging sea. When its waves surge, you still them. He has absolute power. The psalmist says you were enthroned over the flood. Psalm 93, one of my favorite psalms because it talks about the, the floods as this metaphor for pain and trial and turmoil in the life of the believer. And it says, the floods, O Lord, have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring, but mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. It's a promise it's solace in the hands of a sovereign God. Charles Spurgeon preached Psalm 89 and he said this about verse nine. As a mother stills her babe to sleep, so the Lord calms the fury of the sea, the anger of men, the tempest of adversity, the despair of the soul, and the rage of hell. The raging sea obeys him. Next, earthly powers tremble earthly powers tremble. So verse 10 speaks of Rahab. Rahab is a, is a placeholder name for Egypt in the Old Testament. So it's a hyperlink. You click on it and you find the story of Egypt. So Rahab there 
is mentioned in this text. At an earlier point in Israel's history, Egypt was the dominant superpower. She was king of the hills. She, had, she could do whatever she wanted in the world. And the English Standard Version translates verse 10, you crushed Rahab like a carcass. It was not a fight. No one fights with a sovereign God. He's, he doesn't know how to spell the word intimidation. He's never felt Fearful, he's never wrung his hands in frustration, can't do anything about this, unable to intervene. That's not the biblical God. James says God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. Rahab was proud, down she went. And it wasn't hard for him. Look, we need to remember, the God of the Bible isn't safe. When God comes to town in the Bible, sometimes that's a really bad day for the town because he's coming in judgment. He's a God of justice. Let's remember the gospel. So there, there is mercy for any broken sinner in this room. It doesn't matter what you've done, how ugly, how bad, how recent. There is mercy for every broken sinner in the presence of God, you look to Jesus today and you get to live. You get forgiveness of your past, present, and future sins. You get adopted into his forever family. You're his forever. That's the the story of the mercy of God in the gospel. But those who at the end of the day raise a fist into heaven, those who inflict violence on the weak and multiply oppression in the world, they will find Jesus and they'll wish they hadn't. Because he is a God of justice. God's people, beleaguered, embattled people in the Bible, took great consolation in knowing Psalm 2. No collaboration of human intellect, ingenuity, military might can stop the Lord from bringing his promises to pass. That was an anchor for their souls. He's stronger. Our God is the Lord over heavenly armies. He's the Lord over forces of nature. He's the God who's above all earthly powers. Earthly powers tremble. Next, creation shouts his praise. Creation shouts his praise. Verse 11 and 12. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and everything in it. You founded them. North and south, you created them. Now he uses mountains at the north, the far north and the far south. Tabor and Hermon, shout for joy at your name. I lived to experience one of the greatest inventions, maybe of all time, the Walkman. And so it was a wonderful moment because I didn't have to walk around with my boombox anymore, which is a funny picture to think about, but... I could actually, so Walkman was appropriately named because you could put your music on and walk at the same time. And so there were tapes that I would just plug in and I would walk around and I would ride my bike around the suburbs and I would just listen to these tapes and it just represented sort of the, the diverse, high culture taste that I had in music, which ran from Michael Jackson to uh, Ray Bolton to uh, a Christian rock band called Striper. So it was a phase. Yeah, it was ugly phase. <laughs> um, and then there was, this, there was this Christian trio, brothers and sisters, called Second Chapter of Acts. 
And I loved me some second chapter of Acts. Guy had, you know, no hair on top and just big long hair in the back. And I so wanted to be him. And I would listen to all their music. And the cool thing about second chapter of Acts is they put so many hymns on the radar that I had never heard before. Listen to the second chapter of Acts with my Walkmans, the first time I ever heard the lyric, this is my father's world. And to my listening ear, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. And I had no idea what that meant. But I love the harmonies. But then I got older and I thought there was deep truth in those statements. All nature sings round us, ringing the music of the spheres. So often scripture personifies creation as delighting in the creator, the trees of the field, just applauding uproariously, clapping their hands at the glory of God the creator. Here, Mount Hermon, Mount Tabor, lifting up their voices, shouting over the lands for joy in God. It says they shout for joy at your name. How awesome is that? But, but notice the theme of, of joy. It continues in verse 15, but now it's not just the mountains that are shouting, it's God's people, verse 15. Happy are the people who know the joyful shout, who join in with creation, right? Have, they know the joyful shout, Lord. They walk in the light from your face. They rejoice in your name all day long and they are exalted by your righteousness. What, what a song to sing from the ashes, to sing from exile, remembering that heavenly hosts revere him. The raging sea obeys him. Earthly powers tremble. Creation shouts his praise. And to think, next point, this God is for us. This God is for us. Verse 17 answers the question that you might put to verse 15 and 16. You read 15 and 16 and you say, why are you so joyful? Verse 17 says, for God is our magnificent strength. They are joyful, verse 17, for you are their magnificent strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. Verse 18, surely our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. They're joyful in his magnificent strength. You remember when we studied through Nehemiah earlier this year, that classic verse in Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Brian Chappell, a well-known author and biblical scholar, he often writes on preaching and a number of other topics, and he was, years ago, he was telling a story about how he drove his son, his oldest son, to college for his first semester of college. And he said, I was driving there hours, and he could see his son was absolutely falling apart stressed that he was gonna fail academically, just up to here with anxiety and pressure. And, and he said, I just started talking to him and trying to encourage him, telling him what the college experience is gonna be like. And he said, nothing stuck until I pulled the car over. And he said, I said to him, I want you to know I love you. And I'm proud of you no matter what happens this semester. If you fail your classes this semester, I love you. I'm proud of you. And his son would say later on, that, that changed something. That absolutely unconditional acceptance going in gave him a kind of courage and boldness to face what was in front of him. Matt Chandler, the very first message I ever heard from Matt Chandler several years ago, and he was telling a story about burnout in his own life in ministry. 
And he said, everything kind of all converged in one moment. There was difficulties in the church, difficulties in his own life. Uh, they lost a member of their faith family and everybody knew the story and had collected around and tried to comfort and then they lost someone there. And he said, it all piled up in one moment. And he said, I went to sleep and I woke up 18 hours later. And he said, I was just done in ministry. And he said, in that moment, the only way he came out is he said, I sensed at some point the Lord telling me the same thing. And he said, Chandler, if you preach weak sermons, I love you. He said, if this church tanks, I love you. The joy of the Lord was strength. We read in the scriptures, perfect love does what? casts out, it drives out fear. The perfect love of God. He is for us. And you think about it, his for us-ness yields a kind of strength. It yields a kind of risk-taking. A, we might fail, but let's go down swinging. That's what God's love, when it pierces into our hearts and gets into our bloodstream, it creates that strength. He's faithful in love. He's faithful in power. Third, he's faithful to save He's faithful to save. All those promises about David's kingship that are here in the Old Testament, those were seen by the believing community as our promises. Those aren't just for David, sort of locked up in the palace. That's our stuff. Those promises are ours. We're, we're joint heirs with David, co-heirs of the promises of God. In other words, look at verse 21. Those words, my hand will always be with him. Who's the him? It's David. My arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not oppress him. The wicked will not afflict him. I will crush his foes before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and love will be with him and through my name his horn will be exalted. Israel didn't hear those promises and say, man, it would be, wouldn't it be awesome to be in David's family? Golly, there's so many blessings coming his way. No, they, they heard it and they said, he's our king, that's ours. God's favor on our king is his favor on the kingdom. We're in on this. We're joint heirs with the king. It is, it's a promise of total salvation. A promise of comprehensive total salvation. You take the promises of, of God's rescue in Psalm 89. You pile that up with all of God's other promises of rescue in the Bible and what you have are just absolutely stem to stern promises, absolute coverage of your life. Grace, grace that begins the hour you first believe, grace that leads you all the way home. It is comprehensive coverage in his promises. It is a, it's a life in that more abundantly promise. It's, it's a sin will not have dominion over you promise. It's a, I will give you a new heart promise. It's There is therefore now no condemnation promise. It's a pleasures evermore promise. It's a rest for the weary and heavy laden promise. It's all of that is ours in Christ. It's a promise of total salvation, which leads us to the next point. It's a promise pointing to the Messiah. It points to the Messiah ultimately. Look at verse 25. I will extend his power to the sea and his right hand to the rivers. He will call to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I will also make him my firstborn, greatest of the king's of the earth. And here again, the psalmist is reading this from exile and he's looking at the news and he's saying, where, where, how does this show up here? 
How is this real for us right now? It's 585 BC, last year Babylon wrecked our world and it's still that way now. It turns out there are two ways that God's promise to David could have been fulfilled and the psalmist only seems to have anticipated one. So in his outlook, God was saying, David, your house will sit on the throne forever. And the psalmist thinks what God meant by that is, David, you'll be on the throne and then you'll die and your son will be on the throne and then he'll die and then his son will be on the throne and then he'll die and then his son, his son. Generation after generation, the throne of David will always be full. It'll always be occupied. Someone from David's house will sit in that throne. That was his way of thinking about it. But maybe it was something else. Maybe from the beginning, God's intention was to raise up a son from David's line and put him on the throne forever. And that his house would sit on that throne for all generations because the eternal son of David sat on the throne and no one will move him off world without end. Can't happen. He's the sovereign king over all the kings, in other words, we know this in the New Testament. If we've read the New Testament, when Jesus rose from the dead, God gave him the name that is above every name. At his name, every knee in heaven, earth, under the earth, that is every knee in the history of creation will bow in acknowledgement. He's the one. He's the king over all the kings. He's the Lord over all the lords. Jesus ascended on high after his resurrection. He's coronated king of the universe and Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning and he is the coming king and when he comes he will bring righteousness, peace and joy down with him in fullness. His kingdom is breaking in with righteousness, peace and joy now through the church but it will come in fullness. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and we will reign with him forever. That is the blessed hope of the church. This leads us to one more reason to worship God while we wait for his promises to be realized. We worship because he is faithful in love, faithful in power, faithful to save, and faithful when we're faithless. Faithful when we're faithless. And you can hear the doubts mounting up in verse 38 and following. You know, I, I read Psalms like this in the the doubt that's all over this section of chapter 89, and I so wish I could travel back in time. Right, because this is in your notes. We see things the psalmist couldn't see. In other words, and this is obvious, Ethan the Ezraite had never read the New Testament. He, he, he's not perched where we are in history with regard to the coming of Jesus Christ. And given where we live in history after Jesus has come, when we hear him asking these questions about whether God has quit on his promise that he made today and just abandoned the whole plan, we want to go back and we want to say, hey, no, no, wait, wait, there's more. Something's going to happen about 500 years from now. The sky is going to light up over Bethlehem. Angels are going to make a promise and they're going to say the day of waiting is over and the king has been born. And then this Jesus, he will live a perfect life and he will go to the cross and bear our sins and he'll rise again from the dead and God will put that Jesus and he'll be a son of David. So he's everything you've ever dreamed of and thought was coming and he'll be the son of David and God will put that son of David on an eternal throne and we could tell him, hey, 
If I could take you back to 2018, I could tell you the kingdom and rule of Jesus is expanding now. Like right now, he's pulling the nations to himself. Wish you could see what's happening up there as Jesus conquers. We could say that to him because we've seen things that the psalmist couldn't see and yet we wait with the psalmist for what we don't see. There's something in this psalm that we say we could add to his understanding but then there are other things that we could say, I get it, I'm in the same boat in our lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. You're just like we could go back to Ethan and we could say, hang on, there's more. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about this great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us and if we could hear them, we'd hear them saying, wait, there's more. Persevere in faith. Now, I don't know if they still have this. I hate waiting in lines. I know I'm probably not unusual in that regard. But one of the things they used to have, I'm not sure they still have it, is a little ticket pull, the number that you pull when you wait in line. And it was a terrible feeling, right? You go in, you pull like the number 43, and then you'd hear them call out on the speaker, serving number five, and you just want to die, right? It's like, it's kind of, I'm going to be here for years. But what happens when you walk in and you pull the number 43 and they say, serving number 42? It changes everything, right? Your whole experience at the DMV that day is utterly changed because you're up next. You're being served next. Look, the Bible has four tickets to pull. Four numbers, only four, four turning points. Ticket number one was pulled in Genesis chapter one. It's called creation. Ticket number two was pulled in Genesis chapter three. It's called the fall. Ticket number three is pulled in Matthew chapter one when Jesus came to be our redeemer. So creation, fall, redemption, and believer in Christ, you're sitting here in this room holding the number four. You're up next. The next event on the calendar of redemptive history is home. Home. Glory. Pleasures evermore. That's the reason the ancient believers would call this the blessed hope and they cling to it with everything they had because they thought if we lived as if this is true, if we lived with eternity in view and we know Christ is coming back, it wouldn't necessarily give us heaven on earth but it would give us something we need pretty bad. Hope, stubborn, unwavering, confident Hope in the knowledge and certainty that Jesus is ruling, Jesus is reigning, and take it to the bank, Jesus is coming. He's coming. So what do we do while we wait? What do we do while we wait? Two things for us to think about and consider on our way out. Number one, I will sing. That's what we do while we wait. We sing. Again, what we do in gathered worship matters. In Hebrews chapter 10, he says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need this gathering. We might not feel it because it gets crowded out by the busyness of life and just fun events and circumstances and places that we can go and people that we can see. But the church in the first century needed to hear the singing of the congregation. Like, I won't live if I don't hear them sing. 
singing truth into my ears, singing hope deeply into my heart, singing me firm in the gospel. Oh, what a joy to hear my own son this morning singing one of the favorite verses of any song I've ever heard. And it talks about looking to him, seeing him there who made an end of all my sin. What we sing matters. And to see generation after generation singing the praises of our God. We sing ourselves firm in hope. Second, so I will sing and second, I will proclaim. I will proclaim. So the second half of, these are both in verse one by the way. The second half of verse one Like Deuteronomy chapter six, like Psalm 78, here again we see that God's people take very seriously the the call to transfer the gospel to the next generation. To teach our children and our children's children the mighty deeds and the ways of the Lord. That's our call. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 78. It says this in verse four. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. We, what do we wanna do with the next generation coming behind us? We wanna dazzle their hearts with the gospel. Show them the glory of Christ in the pages of scripture. Show them the truth of it and how it'll hold you for the rest of your life. Show them, tell them the stories. What happens in Christian homes at night matters. What we major on in parenting matters. That's part of the reason we're having this parenting conference is just to reinforce what's the main thing for us as parents. A Christian children's ministries in the church, student ministries in the church, all those things, if they're done right, what are they doing? They're coming alongside believing parents, if there are believing parents, to do what? Psalm 78, to tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. Every generation must hear and every nation must hear. Verse one, the telling of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel is an expression of praise. We know how this story ends, right? The son of David comes He lives a life that we couldn't live. He dies the death that we deserve to die. He rose again, conquered enemies that are too strong for us. And he came in order to redeem a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so while we wait for the final fulfillment of God's promises to arrive in our own experience, what we get to do, and I mean get to do, (laughs) is sing among the nations the praises of our God and proclaim in this city and throughout the world the faithfulness of our God. A a hymn was composed in the middle of the Civil War. And like Psalm 89, it brings in so many of the same threads of God's sovereignty and trials and darkness and his promises. And here's what the hymn said. My life goes on an endless song above earth's lamentations. I hear the real, though far off hymn that hails a new creation. Above the tumult and the strife, I hear its music ringing. It sounds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? What though my joys and comforts die? The Lord my Savior liveth, and though the darkness round me close, songs in the night he giveth. No storm can shake my inmost calm while to that rock I'm clinging. 
since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? What what does faith sound like when we're still waiting for his promises to touch down in our experience and in our lives? It sounds like a life bookended by worship. Where where we open our eyes, if you will, on the day of our conversion and we say, verse one, I will sing about the Lord's faithful love forever. And then we close our eyes in death saying, verse 52, blessed be the Lord forever. That that is the sound of faith in the God who keeps his promises.